Hallelujah, the song of the saints around the world and across the centuries. You may be seated for our message. One of the challenges with using as our sermon text the chapter from the story that we read the previous week is what do you do with special Sundays in the church year like like Reformation last week or All Saints Sunday today? Well so far it's working out pretty well I think. Uh, Pastor Kaiser did a marvelous job last week linking Reformation with chapter 7 of the story the battle begins. Chapter 8 this week also provides some excellent material for, for this day, All Saints Sunday. The title, A Few Good Men and Women. Well, that's a pretty good description of God's people, his saints, down through the ages. We've, we've always been outnumbered in this world. But by the grace of God and, and with his help, we've been able to do quite a bit of good here. All Saints Sunday reminds us that God's people throughout the ages have gratefully accepted his grace and have faithfully done his will. That's the saints part of the sermon title. There's another part to that title. You see it on the screen and and, uh, in the service folder. The word there is sinners. We have plenty of examples of that in chapter 8. But there's a more complete title that's also on the screen. The title of the Sermon of Saints and Sinners, they're one and the same. Let's see how that's so. And we'll start by defining some terms. Those are all listed for you in your, in your sermon outline. So chapter 8 is about the judges that God raised up. Deborah, Samson, Gideon. And don't think of a judge as we do in the 21st century. Rather, probably the, the, the best synonym for judge really would be leader. God raised up someone to lead his people out of their oppression. Chapter 8 gives us another slant on the word sinner as well. A sinner is someone who does what's right in their own eyes. That's what happened over and over again in chapter 8. Well, if, if a sinner is someone who does what's right in their own eyes, what do you think a saint is? Someone who does what's right in, in God's eyes. Even if nobody else agrees. Even if nobody else notices. Even if everybody else makes fun of us. Because a saint is certain of this, and I'd like you to tuck this away in the back of your brain because it's going to come up again. A, Satan is certain, a saint is certain of this. God always, underline the word always, God always knows what he's talking about and what he's doing. Well, then our last word to define before we get to some observations is the word holy. You may have heard somewhere along the line that that a saint is a holy person, and that's absolutely correct. And the reason that we can be called holy is, first of all, because a saint is someone who has been forgiven of all our sins 
by God. And that's the reason we get to live in heaven. Those saints who are already there are there not because they were so good, but because they were forgiven by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But that word holy at its root actually means something else. One of the great things about the story is all the, all the definitions that are given there. And on page 45, this is four chapters ahead, or, or we already read this in chapter 4, it defines holy for us. The common literal meaning of the word holy is set apart. God is holy and fundamental, and I'm not using the word holy if you put that in there, um, that's really kind of redundant because what we're saying holy means different. God is holy and fundamentally different from humans because of his purity and perfection. And now this, however, God invites people to be holy. And here's what that means. I think this is what Peter meant when he said to us in the epistle lesson today, so you be holy to live in a way that is set apart, to live in a way that is set apart to serve God. In other words, to be different. Well, keeping those definitions in mind, let's go to some observations. The first one actually is is more of a warning, and that is don't let the history make you lose sight of the theology. It's a lot of history in this chapter, a lot of of action. We don't want to let those exploits of the judges take our attention off of the reason why those exploits were recorded for us. So we don't want to let the history make us lose sight of the theology. The theology has to do really with the next observations. The the first one there talks about the fundamental mistake of the Israelites. You know what that was? It was their failure to fully obey God. What was the one thing he told them to do as as they were going into the land of Canaan? It was to completely conquer the Canaanites. And what did that mean? That meant kill everybody. I guess I can see why maybe the people of Israel had a problem with that. They, They did it actually sometimes, but there were plenty of times where they just didn't. It might help if we put this in terms of lower story and and upper story. In the lower story, what was God's plan for the Canaanites? Well, it was pretty harsh, actually. Everybody dies. But in the upper story, what was God's plan for the Israelites? Everybody lives. Now, why did it have to be that way? I don't know. That's where faith comes in. And that's why faith is so hard. Because it requires us to believe what? I already said it. That God always knows what he's talking about and what he's doing. Saints believe that. Sinners challenge that. Of course, what do we know about saints and sinners? They're one and the same. Well, that leads us to Israel's 
fundamental sin. Their fundamental mistake was their failure to obey God. Their fundamental sin was their failure to serve God alone. And that comes out, actually, there's seven times in, in chapter 8 where the sin of Israel is described with the phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And evil is not defined there as, as doing bad things, but rather what Israel's attitude was toward God. And so on the first couple times where we're told that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, we're told what that is. They forgot the Lord their God, and, and they served other gods. Just before that, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, other gods. They forsook the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. By serving other gods, they forsook the true God. The only one who loved them, who could help them, who could protect them. And why did they commit this terrible sin? Well, that goes back to their fundamental mistake. They had failed to listen to and fully obey God. And as a result, they let the people they were supposed to have driven out of the land have a corrupting influence on them. They adopted the gods and the worship practices of those people. In other words, they embraced the culture of those around them. Which takes us to the next observation, which is how God instructs us to, uh, to deal with the culture around us. Now in chapter 8, what did he tell his people to do with re in regards to that culture? Destroy it! But he doesn't tell us to do that. He gives us different instructions. Jesus tells us that we are to be in the world. Not to destroy it, but to be in the world, not of the world. What he's saying is we are to engage our culture, but not embrace it. Now, if you remember those two words, engage and embrace, congratulations, you were listening last week when, when Pastor Kaiser used those. And I'd like to, uh, to, to use those same words again today and, and maybe expand on them a little bit. Because we are called not to destroy our culture, not to withdraw from our culture, but to engage it without embracing it. So Jesus says, you are to be in the world, but not of the world. He tells us that we are the salt of the earth and light in the world. And the very last instruction he gives his church before returning to heaven is to go into the world and make disciples of those who inhabit the world. So how can we engage our culture without embracing it? Well, there's a couple of ways, I think. The first is one that sometimes I think we want to skip. And that is we need to seek to understand our culture. To realize that that not everything in our culture is bad or evil. That there are some things about it that actually we can agree with and accept. There are other things that we merely tolerate. 
And then there are those that, things that we need to oppose and resist. How do we do that? That goes back to that definition of the word holy as being different. So we show our world a better way. We gently engage them. We get their attention. As we show them how beautiful it is to live with Jesus. And we show them by our words and by our actions. And they will be engaged. As they gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. Now St. Peter says something along those lines anyway in our epistle lesson today. He gives us really three steps in engaging the culture. The first one is prepare your minds for action. As we engage our culture, we will be challenged. What we believe, what we hold to be true will be challenged by the world around us. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to prepare our minds for action. The second thing is to be self-controlled because as we engage our culture, not only will we be challenged, we will be tempted by the ideas, by the morality, or more accurately, the immorality of our culture. So those two things are on the screens. Would you say them with me, please? Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And all the while, the third one, be looking to the future. As, as if you want to drive a straight line, what do you do? You look way down the road so that you're not weaving this way and that. And so Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when? When Jesus Christ is revealed. That's when he returns on the last day. So as we engage the culture without embracing it, we prepare our minds for action, we're self-controlled, and we set our hope on Christ. And then the last point there, the value of communion That's drawn not out of chapter 8, but out of what we're doing here today. And really there's two parts to that, because today is All Saints Day, right? Can you remember a time in the Apostles' Creed where we talk about the saints? How do we describe them? We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, and then actually the next phrase just describes for us what the Holy Christian Church is. The Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. See, one way that we've allowed our culture to influence us is to buy into the innovation of probably the last couple hundred years and that is the accent on individualism. Well, God loves each of us as individuals. But he calls us not to live as individuals but to live in community with others. And so he places us within the communion of saints where we can receive guidance and encouragement and correction and help. 
And then he gives us another great gift as well, and this is the one that probably first came to your mind when I said the value of communion, and that's Holy Communion, which we celebrate again today, and which many of our 8th graders who are looking forward to being and preparing for confirmation in the spring will be participating in for the first time today with their families. They've been receiving instruction on what communion is, that it is the union of Christ's body with the bread and and his blood with the wine. That it is the way in which, or one of the ways, in which he brings us into union with him. And in him, into union or unity with one another. And with saints around the world and throughout history. Talking about the love of Christ, present in Holy Communion. The love that he has for us and which then prompts us to love him. He loves us, sinners though we are. And we love him because he has not left us in our sin, but has made us his saints. And so we seek to show our love for him by living as saints, holy, different, prepared, self-controlled, filled with hope, like I said, different. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.